Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to The Way of Product Design. I'm your host, Caden Damiano. This podcast has one mission, help product designers generate massive value for their clients, their companies, and themselves so they can do the work they enjoy the most. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock the true value design in your work? To help with this, I interview top performers in design, product management, and engineering so you can understand what's valuable to your stakeholders, your bosses, and your customers. So enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Today's guest has a super long rap sheet. He's been around the block several times, it looks, and is just brings a wealth of experience to this show. Uh, I'm super excited. He's been at brands like 7-Eleven, City, and is currently just bringing his expertise to a bunch of different industries, fintech most recently. And I just uh, super <laughs> stoked for what we are going to talk about today. Today's guest is Michael Tinglin. Thanks for being on the show, man. Thank Glad you. to have you here. Thank you for having me, man. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I... I you know, actually, I before I was introduced to you, I saw a lot of your posts. You're an avid resharer. Oh, I am an of articles. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm known for it. There's a little method to that madness too. A little uh -huh. secret I'll I'll let a few people know. I have a background in marketing as well, so I like to test algorithms on uh -huh. social platforms. And so I will post in a stream and do twenty back to back, or I'll do some with hashtags, some without, some with certain hashtags, some without. I'm always prodding and poking at the algorithms. Oh, yeah. Maybe some other time I could pick your brain on what you've learned. But yeah, I found a lot of interesting articles just following you on LinkedIn. And then when, and this show, it's really just based on referrals and like who I interview so that I don't like keep my biases when, you know, sourcing guests. And when I, you were recommended, I'm like, it, hey, the reposting guy. Yeah. I, <laughs> Sweet. I get to get, I get to do a profile on the guy that has like a really good like repost uh, game on LinkedIn. Michael, can you briefly introduce yourself to the listener? Just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from and, you know, you know, and what you're doing today and why you're doing what you're doing. 
Yeah, definitely. So my background in design started in the mid 90s, right around the time the internet was really taking off. I actually, though, started as a print designer. And so I learned a lot of the fundamentals of design and the psychology of design aesthetics through the print world. And then like many people that got on board with designing for the internet early on, we were all frustrated that we couldn't do any of the things that we did in print. And it was pretty boring, needless to say. But over time, we developed some techniques to really stretch. And by the early 2000s, I found myself working. I had worked for myself for several years, but by early 2000s, I found myself working in the corporate world at Neiman Marcus. I helped to start their online division back in 2000. I was one of the first designers hired by them. And that really challenged me to up the design game online because it was really tough working for such a, a major fashion brand and trying to communicate that level of brand messaging with what the tools we had at hand and the techniques. So we were, just to let you know, this is way before CSS, we were slicing in tables and yeah, it was very challenging, but still did some, some really good design. After that, I worked in travel for several years and I did B2B. The focus was as I grew in UX, I'd stayed at Neiman's for over a decade. So I felt like I did all I could do in fashion at that point. And I was like, I really want to try something that's not customer focused per se. There are pluses and minuses to each, obviously, as a designer, but B2B fascinated me to get involved in some enterprise systems and larger software systems. So got into travel and did B2B for some years. Then pivoted from that into marketing, always was interested in marketing, um, especially from the fashion background aspect. But this was a little bit different. This was an executive role. And this agency that was outside of Austin was really big on UX and, and providing really good UX and UX capabilities as a service to the clients. And so that's what really attracted me to them as an organization, stayed with them for several years, end up leading the marketing side of that agency over some time. And then after that, I decided I need to pivot again and focus more maybe on another sector I hadn't tried before. So I had, when I started, when I got out of retail the first time, what I did was I was like, I want to try travel and I want to try fintech or finance and maybe health. And I was like, I think UX could go to all these different fields and really provide value. But in the earliest parts of UX as a discipline or even web design or design, digital design taking off, it was primarily retail. They were the biggest needs for it. And there were some software companies, obviously, like the Googles or whatever the world, but there were no well, there were no social companies or anything like that at first. So anyway, got into finance for some time. And then after finance, it did another pivot back to retail where I was at 7-Eleven for a while and led their in-store team there. And then currently now I'm back in finance again. So it's kind of, it's interesting also too, how the UX is because some of them you'll do in um, travel. I had the opportunity when I went to do B2B systems, I did B2B. B2C, I did some B2C work and I did B2B2C, which I thought was interesting too. Did that for a while. And so it just depends on this kind of mix that you get in different industries, what they need at what different time. Can you tell me a little bit about, and this is just a pure curiosity, like what kind of projects you were working on for 7-Eleven? What, oh, does that include like store layout or like stuff like no, that? No, no, but I did. So we had a special team for that, the store, mm -hmm. uh, store evolution team. They deal with like architecture and how the store is and things of that nature, wayfinding and all of that. No, what we did is we tried to bridge the world between digital and physical. This is something I, I'm trying to get to catch on. So I'll keep saying it, digital. Digital, oh, okay. Digital. But the reality was we would have to work with our in-store systems and really think about how the user was leveraging the digital products we would be making for them in the physical environment. And that was a little bit different in Neiman's where I was strictly focused online and the website in particular, not really for store design or anything in the store. Here, it was everything from kiosks to customer facing displays to advertisement in the store to mobile checkout to points and rewards. So it was very interesting in there because they bridged that world of digital and physical. So your job was to blur the lines. Yeah, in a way, but not even, I wouldn't even say blur the lines more so than saying, uh, make this, the experiences as seamless as possible. Yeah. Yeah. 
definitively as best as you can there are going to be some certain limitations yeah and that's how i'm seeing like when i so i'm reading uh this book right now called how innovation works and it's basically he redefines innovation as innovate there's a difference between invention and innovation invention is just making something doesn't mean it's viable like nokia invented tablets and like prototypes of smartphones before apple but they didn't make it into a viable technology for business like innovation scale it or didn't scale it yeah or it's or they didn't put enough resources into making it cheaper more liable more accessible more affordable and that's what innovating is focusing on like how can, how do we make this something that the common person can access and then you look at generations of innovation travel like railroads used to be the big tech companies in the 1800s and bridges and, and oh yeah infrastructure and then, yeah exactly and rockefeller made oil cheap and accessible to the common person so that they could get cars and and now we got this new career called digital product design ux design and you know we used to think oh we're product designers like we're actually like we're a big deal no we're like the next iteration yeah i would say <laughs> and i think that i think too with the title changes it confuses some people like yeah a UX design versus product design in some places it's not that different but some uh-huh. places it is different and I think the difference is depending on the org and the org structure a product designer is expected to know a little bit more about the business than an mm-hmm. average designer and every designer should know about return on investment for the business and providing good outcomes for the business and hitting those business goals but a product designer will probably think a little bit more strategic about yeah how we do this, how we lay this out, when we do it this way, what's the ramification of it? Is this a phase two? Is this another release in the future? And work, I think, as a closer partner with the product managers than traditional designers would. Yeah, and you know what? And I feel like the iterations on purpose, right? Because I think the early iterations of UX design was, okay, how do we do digital? interfaces and whatnot and now you're pointing out like with your work that it's like making the connection between digital interface and physical output almost yeah Yeah. is like as seamless as possible it's like we're digitizing traditional business models yes and a little bit of vice versa so yeah you want the physical things that people interact with to be as seamless and or easy to use as their smartphone is. Yeah. If you look at a lot of those physical systems or POS point of sale systems in particular, outside of Square, who's done a fantastic job with smaller businesses and and creating a really easy to use POS, a lot of the POS systems are not easy to use. They're pretty Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of tough. And so even when you have a a CFD or a customer facing display or a pin pad or something like that, we're used to that now, but it causes all kinds of weird consternation like I, I can tell you what's interesting to me like tap to pay never really took off in the u.s hmm. I, and people are like oh my car can tap to pay now actually that we started that like 10 years ago <laughs> and we and several of us might have had cards and didn't even know they were tap to pay cards just never really caught on here just like qr codes are making a comeback they never really caught on here but like in asia pacific region qr codes and tap to pay are like standard you know what I mean? Yeah, like so, WeChat, right? That's oh, like yeah. basically oh, how you... It's QR code yeah. for everything and then, and even street vendors, but tap to pay is huge because you don't have to do your code and any of that. And there's a limitation on those transactions. So you feel a little bit safer. They're usually $45 and below. That's like a US uh, translation of that. But yeah, so it's just funny when you see these things and you wonder why didn't it take off? Is it a cultural thing here or is it the systems that the people are interacting with here and they feel like that's more pain than it's worth? Yeah, you can't just put like a digital interface on top of an old, like unusable piece of hardware. Right. Yeah, rethink like how the hardware works. It's almost like a, Tesla's becoming the new Apple when it comes to examples of yeah. things, would- right? Yeah, like they, they designed the hardware, the, the, all the physical controls are very minimal on the Tesla. They've put basically all the controls of the car on a, a digital interface so that they could update it with software. Yep. And it makes it a timeless uh, piece of equipment that ages well. 
And that's what designers need to focus on now is, okay, how could this, how could we use like digital technology to make our hardware more efficient and vice versa, like you said, and you've probably seen it all. You've probably seen the, you probably took part in like defining what UX in product design is. You've probably helped invent the role over your time. Yeah, I, I would say I would. I'll give you an example. Early on, when I was at Neiman's, there was there were no real, there were no real baselines in the early part, like in two thousand. So, like a shopping cart, everybody had a different one. People were using Flash for shopping carts. It was all over the map. And then over time, I'm going to be honest with you. How a lot of conventions come about is designers ripping each other off. Truth be told. So if, if someone gets something and then their company gets, or they do, they create a process, they create a design and a, and a system, and then they're perceived to be successful, then other people are going to copy. And this happened like over and over and over again at Neiman's. It was ridiculous. Like we could always just watch a competitor and be like, wait next month. And then we could just go through and see them updating to catch us or something. What I would do though, in creating those conventions in the early part, before things started to become more conventional and we had more established patterns for how users did things. And some of that came through research. In the beginning, we didn't even have research. We just went off of psychology and, and ergonomics. Some of us who went to school and probably took ergonomics or heuristics, that's what we went off of. And a lot of us who had done web work early on knew understood information architecture and just used logic. But I'll say that early on, it was like a wild west. It was, everybody was trying everything. I remember when Amazon, when they, to me, when they really got innovative was when they came with the one click, mm -hmm. right? And when they instituted one click, we were like, yeah, we want one click <laughs> as well. And then I, I think they had it patented and we were wondering at the time, like there was a big debate, can you patent a process? All of these things that were still in the nascent part of the internet. But yeah, to your point, uh, a lot of these conventions happen over time and how they happen is usually people copying each other. Now, what I try to do is if I'm in a certain industry, I'll look outside of that industry for ideas oftentimes. I'm not in the habit of just copying for the sake of copying. Now we know that nothing's new under the sun and you do copy things, but uh, culturally I come from a background, especially involving in, being involved in music where uniqueness is, is uh, you should try to be as unique as you can be. And so it's always, what are you bringing to the table? How did you do it different? If, the, if something else inspired you, how did you improve it for, to achieve the, the goal that you're trying to design for? Yeah, it's being original and an original and novel doesn't necessarily mean you completely invented yeah, the fact. idea. Yeah. yeah. It's your, you, you synthesized your own spin on it based off your that's perspectives, what you know. And sometimes, and that's actually like what frustrates me. And before we get into our main topic, that's what frustrates me about, I guess, in design right now is, oh, we need to use this pattern because you know, Nielsen Uber or, group, like or yeah, or it's best practices or Facebook does it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You just nailed it on the head. Yeah. Oh man. Like if Facebook does it, they have all these resources to really validate it. And we make that assumption that they've done a lot of work to validate it. And then we take that pattern and it doesn't work for us because it wasn't designed you know, for that. Yeah. It's the, it's just the analogy of a tailored suit. If you just buy a suit off the rack, it doesn't fit. Like you just buy a Facebook suit, it's a little tight, you know, around the arms and stuff. Like when you have a tailored suit, it fits because it fits the situation. And I, I'm seeing like designers, like we're tailors, yeah, like obviously. So you're going to, you're going to face a challenge. We would, I think most designers would, and if they're like me, they have all the fonts in the world and don't use them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all of the systems, the design systems and the yeah. UI systems and components and don't use them. We'll do it from scratch all again. I think a lot of that stuff for me is just um, idea generation. It's just it's just a thinking. I probably right. will end up doing it from scratch anyway. But no, I think that one thing to consider about these patterns, and we're talking about these big companies and they're establishing patterns, is that though we have to take into account that some of the companies have so much weight and have so many users that they're technically programming the users to do it that way. Mm. So we have to look and say, okay, this person, Facebook or Google or whomever, they have 10, 20 million people using this software a day or an hour or whatever. Well, they're programming people to do it that way. 
So that's, I think what leads a lot of us to look at them is just to your point, is it adapted properly? Does it really solve the problem that you're trying to do? Don't just copy for copy's sake. Yeah. And you could always, you, you could take the idea and be like, oh, I really like this pattern, but you have to, you have to make it original for whatever yeah. you're doing, not for the sake of originality, but the fact that you, you need it to fit your business and its use case. But you that adapt. being said, yeah, adapt it. Yeah. But I mean, on to what I really want to learn, because you've learned, you've been in a ton of industries, you've been around, you've been around so long, you've seen everything, I bet. And before our interview, we talked about like potential topics we could talk about. And I just add, and I usually just ask, what are you passionate about right now? What, what's something that you could easily start ranting about? Oh and God. you mentioned that UX being adopted by so many diverse industries, even outside of like traditional tech companies and the inherent pitfalls. What do you, can you articulate like the pitfalls and oh, yeah. like the things that concern you from the quick adoption of UX? Yeah, I think one is that, that UX is magic. There's not, this is a craft and mm -hmm. this craft takes a lot of skill to do properly and to achieve the goals and create the, the great outcomes and the ROI that every company wants. So UX isn't magic and there's a process to it. I see with a lot of new industries or when I say new, these are, I'm probably saying 2020, 2010 after the first 10 years of the, was really establishment of the net and everything, making it economically viable. But what I've seen in the past decade or so has been a lot of other industries picking it up and they think that it's going to solve all their problems. UX and having UX practitioners, whether internally or even as consultants, but that's not necessarily the case because UX is an umbrella of CX, of customer experience. And that's how people view your entire brand in any interaction, not just digital interactions and not just physical interaction. That's how you're perceived. And I think that there's probably a lack of uh, thought and strategy from maybe sometimes uh, top down, but there's a, and sometimes it's just within a group, but a strategy about how best UX can support CX and how best UX should permeate and certain principles from UX should permeate the organization. Example. So design thinking is super popular. It's great. It's fantastic. It has, just like anything, it has its pluses and minuses depending on how it's conducted. But I don't think that uh, design think you should do design thinking for every little thing. I don't. And I think that's become a big trend and for good or for bad. Some people go, Oh, you're UX people. So we need to have a workshop every day on everything. So that, no, we don't. We, <laughs> we do those things to come to points of alignment as a group to make sure that we're all agreed on what we're solving for. And then to take away takeaways from that. So that people can start executing on that. And we have some reference point for when people inevitably drift. You can say, hey, hey, come back. This is what we all agreed to that we're doing. That's a real, to me, main reason to design think. And then in a setting with the team or personally, it's for you to figure out how to solve it, how to actually go about solving it, breaking the work down and properly creating a cadence so that it can be achieved in the amount of time that you have to achieve it. So I just think that the, the, some people believe, uh, some of the orgs that UX is going to solve everything. And that's not true. If you have a tough business model or not the best brand identity, UX can't just solve all of that. You have a lot going on. And then there's this concept, I think, too, about the three-legged stool. This is what I'm hearing the most lately. Three-legged stool. And it's funny to me that one of the key legs is not included. So the three-legged stool is supposed to be product management, development, and UX. This is like every company, this is what they're saying now. And I'm like, have you tried to sit on a three-legged stool? Like you got to really position it just perfectly so you don't tip over. I like the four-legged stool approach. I like to have marketing in there. And the reason I like <laughs> to have marketing is because that helps to sell it and fulfill on the fantastic outcome that you want. So I could build the best experience in the world if I can't get qualified users. And when I say that, people that I think would be interested in it, not just whomever, not just a shotgun approach or trying to get people to use the app or system or whatever. If I can't get them to do that, and this is primarily B2C, if I can't get them to do that, it doesn't mean anything. Then it's just me designing on my computer at the house. You know what I mean? So I think that the that there's a missing, there's a missing, there's a missing leg to that stool, which is I think the other three groups who have come into ascendancy lately should not forget marketing. 
A lot of UX people, a lot of us as designers worked under marketing or in marketing groups for a chunk of the time UX was inside Corpse. And a lot of agencies are marketing agencies that have UX capabilities, truth be told. So I think that's a miss. I think the concept of UI is dominating the concept of UX for a lot of people in different industries. So they think that we really just come and make it pretty. And visual design and, U and the UI chops are definitively very powerful and needed because I've never heard anybody go, oh my gosh, I've had a few people, but for the most part, you never hear people go, oh my gosh, their code is so elegant. <laughs> or you never hear them go, oh my gosh, this process was, well, a few people, this process was so easy or whatever. That's what you want. But the reality of it is, I think people always go, oh, this looks great. I think that's because it started that layer and then they peel the mm -hmm. onion back. And what I have to do oftentimes is I'm going into a new industry or an industry that's new to it, or their group isn't really developed, or they may not have a mature UX practice is to let them know UX is really more about how it works. And then what we want to do is look at your current processes and flows, because most of them have them. And then we want to see then how do we best humanize these things? How do we make sure that it's supporting the user, whether those are internal users for B2B system or whether B2B partners or B2C, how are you supporting them so that they will complete what you want? You want the payoff, you want the ROI, you want them to complete the task. You, there's ways you have to do that. And I'll tell you something real soon, uh, real quick about that. So in e-com and in retail, you want to get them through the cart and have them buy everything in the cart. <laughs> like that's the goal. I will tell you in fintech. And so in doing that, I think um, retail UX is what's really established. Like don't do too many clicks or a lot of rules of, uh, that are like mm -hmm. rules of thumb for UX. However, in fintech, I found that you might want to introduce clicks. You may want to introduce strict friction for, uh, strategically because these are very big decisions sometimes being made with people's money and you need them to pause and think about it. Mm -hmm. I, I, that was interesting to me coming into FinTech. I was like, oh, that's the opposite of what I've done for a chunk of my career in retail, which is I got to get you in here and I need you to convert. I need you to buy everything in this cart, preferably do not abandon the cart. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people's experience, especially if they come from a marketing background, it's e-commerce and, and it's really easy to apply mental models from something that's complicated like e-commerce, which it's, yeah, it's complicated. There's a lot to go into a good store, but it's not complex. Like the variables are pretty controlled. If they want something, there's consistent patterns that lead to success. But when we apply things to fintech, for example, like I work in fintech. I work in a lot of homey, the company I work for homies, like covering a bunch of different stuff, like home buying and stuff, but really like into making it affordable. So there's like a fintech aspect of it. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it, there are, there is no playbook for digitizing home ownership right now. Oh. We're all figuring it out. And yes. And, and so that's, what's interesting. That's, and that's a great uh, segue actually. So what's interesting about these newer industries is it seems that their need for UX coincides with disruption in the industry. Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm. the point I want to make. So I'll, I'll say when I first started, I'll give you a perfect example. When I first started 7-Eleven, I spoke with some people when I was interviewing and I said, hey, what, tell me who you're worried about. <laughs> this is a question I ask people occasionally. I'm like, whom? And they, and they rattled off a few people and about maybe five people. And I would say two of them were really disruptive. And I was like, yeah, okay, this makes sense to me now. I get it. Because oftentimes you have to weigh the reasons an organization is trying to do something, achieve something, or have UX people to see if it's a good fit for you. So I saw that and I was like, okay, this is disruptive. And I started to look at this too. When I was in at City in particular, they saw some disruptors entering into the banking industry. And it wasn't just other banks. <laughs> I was like, okay, I totally get this. And this is the correct timing for this. This is the correct time to build a group out and to do these things. So I always think that when we see UX needs in a new industry, it is usually in response to disruption, which I think is good. Great for us. Great job. Great having jobs. However, I think that's reactionary. And I'm really, I really like orgs that are trying to think ahead of the game and who really are seriously trying to 
not just disrupt everybody in their industry, but be the best org they can be or be the best business they can be and really service their people and their customers in a best in class way. I look for that as well. So it, it brings up the obvious question then that like, when do you think it'd be better to just bring on a product manager instead of a UX designer? Like when is, when, maybe when, like, when should your response not be, oh, let's hire a bunch of designers? Oh yeah. So I think you shouldn't hire a bunch of designers until you have some idea of what your vision and strategy is. Mm. As a, my opinion. And the reason that is, and you don't have to have every single little thing baked out. That's not what I'm saying. You should have a North star, you should have a vision, and then you should have an idea of how this strategy helps the business and helps you in your sector, in your space, right? And then a strategy about how you're going to go about fulfilling on this. When you have that in there, now you need the players that's gonna, that are going to help you turn this vision into a reality, some form of tangible reality, digital or physical or otherwise, or combination thereof, whatever. And, and I don't think, and I think the way you phrased your question, it was like, or a product person. I don't think those are mutual, those are not mutually exclusive. I would probably, depending on how the orgs are, of course, I would probably say you get those product people in pretty early on. And, yeah, and that's that first yeah. set that tone. And then you bring your creative people in on to help you manifest that. Yeah, that's what I'm starting to learn about more and talk about design thinking. The, you got like the first two stages, empathize, define. And I'm starting to see that the product management role is starting to evolve into owning Oh yeah, that part of design thinking, which is great. Man, if having a good product manager, this is probably the first time I career where I have a product manager that is, oh, this is where you should be going. Here's my rationale for doing it. And I'm like, cool, I'll just design. Let me tell you, it is worth its weight in gold. What I will tell you is, and this is a funny thing that you brought that up, Katie, because we as designers are creeping over into the developer world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it seems like everybody's like going pushing each other this way so product manager or product management is in the ux world and some product managers always had ia chops and as well i've known product managers from even early 2000s that were great information architects so it just depends on what their background is but yes a lot of them are taking this what we used to call discovery they're taking that discovery role they're doing generative research the whole nine. That's great. I, th- I think that, although I like uh, dedicated researchers, but in any event, yes, it serves purpose. Now, a lot of designers, those and architects, they're bigger into prototyping. And then from a visual design aspect, when you start prototyping and you're doing all these extra screens because you're trying to create every state, it makes you just want to code the thing. <laughs> just yeah. like, just make or- this real or as real as possible. Or you're like, yeah, at a minimum, you're defining functionality of what, okay, this is how the backend should be architected to support this experience. Yes. Like you're architecting and then like now the engineers are like in pushed, no offense engineers, but you look at any company where it's the first iteration is very engineering led. It's like very functional, but it's like a garbage product and just yeah. works because they had they hired a bunch of salespeople to shove it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> honest. A lot of the the systems that we all get to work on, a lot of them are not new. They're legacy mm-hmm. systems that we are updating and bringing a more rational user-centric approach to how they are used mm-hmm. and how they're leveraged within the org. And yeah. we're like enterprise systems now. And it's not to be like, oh, we're going to make it pretty. I think that's a big misnomer. No. It's going to look great. However, it's going to work 10 times better. Yeah. Like I can say when I was in travel, the, the first times I got to really work on B2B systems, th- I was updating systems that were green screen, like teletype. I don't even know what you, if you know what that looks like. That's think of 1980s. Yeah. Think of a uh, terminal. If you're mm-hmm. on a map, think of your terminal, think of DOS. Yeah. And that's the systems people were using in travel like six, seven years ago when I was working in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this hasn't been updated since the eighties. So now this is a big deal to just put a GUI on it, not to enhance a GUI or make it better to put a GUI on it was a big deal and a challenge. And when I did that, cause we were doing um, some work for agents that would book crews 
And cruises, oh my God, I had no idea how many parameters were involved in booking a cruise. So mm -hmm. in any event, but I tried to say, okay, and, I, and a lot of times it was uh, smaller agencies or agents, home-based agents. And then you have to look at your audience, you look at screen size, you, you try to get any data you can now from the current system, whatever you can get. They might've done some surveys. You'll find out that some of your people that you're designing for may be older. So it's avoid certain things. And when I started to create a GUI, and had pictures of the ship and plans of the ship and they could click on it and choose that. They were like, <laughs> they couldn't yeah. believe it. They were like, no way. And that that's what I love. I love to get that vindication back from the user. This is stellar. I love this. This makes my life so much better. That's what I want to hear from anybody I'm designing for. Yeah. And I think that's a lot easier when you have a good product person that has established oh, yeah. a vision of, oh, this is, I, we found out through research that this feature set or this value prop is very valuable. Now design, go forth and figure out how to deliver this value Yeah. in your designs. I love research. I love doing it. I love getting insights and stuff, mm -hmm. but what I love is actually just, but I do love really executing on a good idea. Oh, and that, that's, that, that key, that gets me going at 2 a.m. I'll work uh -huh. That's what gets me going and coming up with an idea at 2 a.m. is I like that. And I and as I said, I've been a leader, I've been an executive, and I like to design. And I will continue to design. I do not believe these things are mutually exclusive. I think people put themselves in boxes. Or they, or you can't go back to IC roles I have. Know, after being a manager, <laughs> which I'm looking at your LinkedIn right now and I'm like, no, this guy's yeah. Yeah. Whatever's clever, Trevor. That's how that's, that's <laughs> I, I think that it depends on where you're at in your life and what you want to do. I think that people have a very, it's funny. People that work in an agile environment are not agile with their lives. It's funny. Mm, right? Yeah. You know, dude, this is for me, this is a sprint, right? So this chunk I'm working at this company, that's a sprint. As far as I'm concerned, that's a part of my life sprint. And I'm going to go in, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to contribute this and when I exit, this is what I want to take with me to the next set of roles. And I think that people, there are, there, there are pressures on us, especially as you get older in a creative industry or in anything tech in particular, you'll feel that you have to go up. I think it's great to experience that, but I also think that leadership is not for everyone. And I also think that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't feel like, oh my God, I have to do this or I can't get a job. No, don't think like that. People want people to help them. And in any way and capacity, you can bring help to the table and provide good outcomes. They will want you. And that's what you should concentrate on, doing great work. As I said, though, I know people chase titles and they want different things. I'm just saying it's not all it's cracked up to be at any level. Yeah, totally. And, and also moving up doesn't mean that's the only way to make more money, right? Oh. It's yeah, because like a principal designer should be compensated like a VP of design. Yes. And then it depends on the org, but usually it's yeah. at least like a director level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like, like it, that. Like, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, actually, no, finish your thought. This is your episode. So <laughs> thank you. No, I was saying what I've seen is lately, a lot of orgs are, are creating IC roles, more and more of these IC roles where you get to move up and you don't have to necessarily manage people. And the reason I say that this is not cut out for everybody because there've been organizations I've been a part of where you could tell there were managers who only got that role because of tenure. Mm -hmm. Because of how long they've been there, seniority, and it's, but they're terrible people managers or they're not good at this part or you haven't coached them properly. And, and then that just causes all kinds of ripple effects throughout the org, negative ones, and then now people are working around them. It's like, why are we doing that? That's not necessary. And it takes a lot of emotional intelligence to be a leader and to be, and to motivate people. It takes a lot. Okay. There's a time and a place for everything. And so you have to know and be able to read the person, read the room, read the team and understand what's the best way to motivate everybody to achieve this result and this goal. But I, but you would be surprised how many design orgs in corporations don't have a good way to measure any success. So the issue that you face when you're not measuring anything is you can't use that as a motivating factor. You can't show people where they contributed 
And then so they can build off of that. So they can learn off of that. So they can get better and they go, oh, I get it now. So I would always, anybody I would work with or lead as a team, I would try to get the designers to understand business and how business works and why you're there and the difference between design and fine art. And you would think that many people know this, but they don't. And it's, look, this is not, if I just want to be an artist, I'd be down in Deep Ellum on the sidewalk with a guitar and chalk drawings. I'd just be kicking it. But if I'm trying to create commercial ends and goals for the organization I'm with and myself, then I have to think a little bit differently about it. And that's why I like to put it more in the craft mode. I think people get craftsmen or craftswomen are creative people that sell their wares or sell what they create. And and I think that puts people more in in a proper mindset of how they should think about uh, UX and as a discipline is, hey, this is design. It is there to achieve certain endings, primarily economic endings, not always as we see UX now taking off in in the foundation world and in the social activist world. And so that's great. And that's transformative for society. But most of design and most of what we'll all be engaged in will be for an economic end. Yeah, helps the economy, helps helps everybody, hurts nobody. Yeah, yeah, it's that's why we get into it. And, and also, it's people put a damper on economic stuff, but I think I don't know you, why. It, it, but we like going to movies. We like eating out, and you need money. You like going on vacations to Cabo. It's just those, you are the life experiences you have. And that's like a whole nother podcast on, hey, UX, it's a very high influence, high impact career. If depending on the companies you work at, still job. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And something else to consider when we are, are creative people, I think the concept with the money part is like you're selling out, right? No, you can sell out, but that's not what uh, design and you making a living off of design is about. And I think that comes just from creative people because most creatives in society usually have a personal message too that they're trying to get through and get across through their work. And from a fine art perspective, or even I've known this, I've done this with my musician friends for years. We talked about did someone sell out. I'm like, yeah, when you're young, you, will, you can say things like that. <laughs> when you get older, you're like, no. I need to achieve this, do this, pay for this. I have responsibilities. So it's a different, a little bit different game. Even the young and older musicians are the same too. So younger uh-huh. musicians, they're like, oh, they sold out. And then when they're older, they're like, oh, you didn't invite me to the award ceremony. You <laughs> I don't get to open for such and such. You'd be like, oh, okay. Now you care. Before that mm-hmm. was selling out. So I think it's just also to where you are in the, in the life cycle of your career. But I would caution people, do not make your career linear. I have a firm belief that creative people aren't actually valued as much in society as we think they are. Well, because some mm. pe- some creatives are valued and there may be celebrities. And so we believe, I think some people believe that all creatives are valued, but that's far from the truth. Very far from the truth. I think creatives in, in, in any society, especially in industrialized societies, aren't needed until they're needed. Or people don't exactly. think they need us until they need us. We don't need, we didn't need UX designers until the internet matured to a point where we could well, like optimize in, those in digital channels. In right? its current form, in its current form. But remember yeah. that early on, as people started to get personal computers, how people interacted with those systems and operating systems is UX as well. That's true. The OG UX guys were just engineers. Yes. Yeah. And- and, and, and more like ergonomics, like why a keyboard, yeah. why a mouse, why a GUI, why a graphic interface versus the terminal? Why, why do you put the trash can there? <laughs> like what is all, what their thinking went behind this? So we can say technically it started a little bit earlier, but with the boom, with the internet came a boon for this skill set that we are still in now. Yeah. And you're totally right. I think design thinking is really like, old but i think the professions that kind of was nested in and like what problems were being solved changed with like how advanced technology was i'm going through the biography of Isenberg kingdom brunel he made like the thames tunnel great western railway but it was like one of those like titans of industry like engineers that like with dredges and stuff forcing into existence fighting nature building canals like that kind of stuff and but it was it was them just having the vision of there's a story in the book where you know he's writing 
one of the first like railways and it's like really bumpy ride and this is when that was like the big new technology like everyone's getting in the railway business trying to get contracts to build railways and stuff and he just wrote he had this concept called a castle in the sky, which is like a moonshot goal yeah. <laughs> for them back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. But, but it it was like, oh, maybe one day I could actually write while riding on the train. And it's like a smooth experience, like I'm flying or gliding. Yeah. And See, he made experience. it happen. Yeah. Experience. experience he focused what, on the experience. That's what I'm yeah. talking about. So it's how it is. How does it work? Yeah. How does it make somebody feel? There are psychological underpinnings to this. And as I said, I learned in fintech, you don't just give them everything as quick as possible because that can be dangerous. <laughs> you might have to say, are you certain you'd like to transfer this $10,000? You know what I mean? You might need to throw some friction in there and think. And adding that friction is basically you as the designer respecting the precedent from like hundreds of years of like lessons learned. And I think that's like how you, that's respect, respecting like the laws of innovation, which is really just a small iterative tinkering process and you you can't have a smooth railway without a rough one we need to have the rough technology that like the ugly baby first and we got to respect that and know our history of the technology the space to make good experience solutions or at least know what problems to solve no yeah definitely think of this too a lot of the social economy that we have now and social networks that that are so popular These are not like, and we said this earlier, these are new manifestations of some things that were around from the beginning of the internet or concepts. We had chat rooms, we had messaging, (laughs) we had trying to create a space, a virtual space for you to do things with other people. These concepts were there. It's just over time, the technology to make those better and truly the interaction level could be on the real time could be real time the way we wanted it to be. And then you saw it take off. You know what I mean? And they have their cycles too. Some industries, I think they're safer than they are. Hmm. Uh, social, I would say that. <laughs> because, oh, totally. Yeah. As I think governments around the world see the power of social media. Yeah. This crackdown is coming and this regulation is coming. And, I, and that's with the U.S. all the way to North Korea. Like everyone sees the power of this medium. They're not just going to let it be unregulated. It's just not going to happen. It's going to, it's going to, I think the regulations that will affect it will be more on the lines of what affects traditional media. And I think that the patterns that we use and products will change as regulations come down. Like yeah. I, I'm kind of making the, this is a talking head prediction. I'm making the prediction that like free trials are going to be over. I think as we, as we like make illegal, the dark patterns that keep you and make you accidentally pay money for things, then they're going to, there's going to be friction involved as a user. Like you're going to have to pay. It's, it's like journalism. Yeah. Oh, journalism has gotten hit the worst. You're, yeah, exactly. Great point. Like now yeah. you can't get like a reputable news source without going through a paywall. And I think that's correct. I think that's fair. It's like, if you so, want good- I'm a 50, 50 on that because yeah, I, okay, am, go ahead. I, I remember when, when display advertisement was new and it was still pretty effective the the new sources could support themselves properly or their web properties that way. I think here's another thing too. I think that for all of the newness of the internet and the economy and this fan and the growth in it for my generation is definitively the sector that has employed most of us. I don't know if it truly has made up right for what was lost. Why I say this, there's a tendency amongst tech entrepreneurs to say, oh yeah, this thing I'm inventing, it's going to put 10 million people out of work, but it's going to create 20 million new jobs. But no one talks about the quality of the new jobs because usually what they're doing and when they're disrupting and displacing people, they're not the ones creating the new jobs. So then I, so what I would, and my background's in social sciences, anthropology and sociology, what I would, would ask is, okay, great. What's the quality of the new jobs? Hmm. And we don't use that as a hindrance on, on innovation, but we need to take that into account because all of these things are for the service of the species. So no other species does, you know, like AI. <laughs> I have some issues with AI. I love AI in concept. I have been a robot fanatic since I was a kid. <laughs> However, 
I think we need to put some rules and regulations and parameters around AI and the use thereof. Like, why would we as a species put us all, put ourselves out of work for what, to do what, to go where, to impress who, for why? Mm-hmm. I haven't yeah. heard an answer to this yet. I, I think the businesses that there's going to have to be like new businesses and products now to fill that gap of the job to be done of having meaning. You could say that like DoorDash and a lot of these gig apps do that, like they're fulfilling that role. But I, I yeah, it's definitely very immature on from an industry perspective on, yeah, what, what happens to the people that get displaced, right? Um, yeah, like to me, there just should be better societal planning for this. And I think Elon has sounded the alarm at the same time he's made Neuralink, but he sounded the alarm that if we don't put some parameters around, this can really be detrimental to us. For sure. I, I've, I, we're, we don't want to, we're coming up on time. I don't want to spend too much time. I don't want, I, you know, I want you to enjoy your afternoon, spend time with people you care about and stuff. But yeah, and I really appreciate this. I think like the big takeaways for me, like the new wrinkles in my brain from this is it, it uh, like valid when you validate like the value of design, you're also showing how valuable like product management is. And, and then also we're also forgetting about the people that used to be in the forefront of like product, which is the marketing guys. Yeah. And BAs and traditional. Yeah. And all the, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's more of a six footed bench. Now I think we're really like all the people that put together like a, a great offering and stuff, but not just because we have these new jobs and, you know, refined or focused on delivering value and good experiences, which is, you know, great for, you know, humanity is where businesses are prioritizing experience more because like we're getting diminishing returns on like engineering improvements to yeah. products. You can't say it's, it's faster now and then no, sell uh, it. No, I think you're, I think you're correct. I think that experience has become a differentiator, but that's been a challenge for us as designers as well, because design is starting to get cookie cutter because we do, we converge and diverge as a discipline. So we converge on new f- trends and everybody's like, glass morphism, skew morphism, right? <laughs> and then that crashes or doesn't crash or whatever. We all get sick of it, like flat. I'm totally sick of flat. And then, and we've done flat four or five times, called it four or five different things. And then we diverge again. And if you have enough weight, then you can, people will start to come your way on the convergence. I think well, weight yeah. has a lot to do with it. I think UI is getting to a place where it is very cookie cutter. But if like product designers or UX designers or whatever, like really want to differentiate themselves now, it's now's the time that like, we don't have to spend as much time, especially if you have a good design system, we don't need to spend as much time pontificating on what they, yeah. Yeah. Like now, like uh, actually JB Chikowski said, I predict that most design when it comes to UI is going to be done by a central team. And then everyone else, all the other UX designers are going to just be moving around Legos and all they're going to focus on is architecture. The, the kind of the systems thinking like those are now the new killer, critical thinking and soft skills and like facilitation skills are now like the new killer skills to have. Yeah. So I'll tell you in FinTech is where no end retail, I've really got to flex my architecture muscles. I believe that most UX orgs are not putting a proper emphasis on a couple of different UX subdisciplines one being architecture, the second being UX copywriting, the third mm. being having a dedicated prototype or, or some or a UI developer, somebody that bridges the teams between design and, de- and dev. I think these are a big miss. If orgs aren't setting their pods up this way or they're not looking for the skill set amongst their generalists, they're missing the boat, period. You can't just have your designers making up copy. That's a fail. And, you, and, it, and there's m- numerous examples of this. And an architect, the plus of that of having an architect is to really have somebody that can really suss out all the problems ahead of time and give some clear path, if it's even the happy path, some clear path of what the visual designer can concentrate on, what the UX designer can concentrate on. And I've done, and I've been a strict architect only, and I've done that at all types of resolutions and fidelities, but I find that works really well. A dedicated architect, dedicated designer, dedicated copywriter. That's to me the best team setup. But I know, really? 
Yeah, I think orgs gen- gravitate towards generalists. Usually, my opinion is financial. I'm going to be mm-hmm. honest. They're trying to cut headcount. But what we would do, even at Neiman's and working in retail, is we would have, we didn't even have it that, we didn't even have it that defined. You just fell into a role. And if you were fantastic at it, then that was like your thing. That's your job. Yeah. And then what we would do is we would look for ancillary skills. So one of the best designers I ever worked with on a team, he's his he had a background in video editing and motion graphics. And so bringing him to the table was fantastic for fashion. He helped up all our game and I can edit some video too, but nowhere like him. And then we had other people who had a process background. They'd worked in print in giant print shops, crazy deadlines. They were so good. So when we brought them into the UX world, they helped refine our processes we just cranked up the productivity like by 100%. So you, you wanna look for people that have these ancillary skills, but my opinion is let people concentrate on parts of the process and do it well. And if you do that and you have a vision and a strategy, you usually get the best outcomes. It makes you think that, because yeah, they're trying to reduce headcount because they wanna have like that three-legged stool for a lot of like minute problems across the business, like squads dedicated to one problem space. Or you have, multiple specialists focused on a broad problem space and yeah, now true. like yeah this is me pontificating and actually people are like oh don't solution in meetings i'm like i'm not solutioning i'm pontificating like i'm just talking out loud thinking out I, loud I, I would ask why can't we solution in the meeting why are we having a meeting yeah <laughs> yeah it's like well we need to be able to just think out loud and it's a form of synthesis but yeah it's like interesting because if you could increase production, which have a dedicated, uh, dedicated prototyper, dedicated UI designer, dedicated UX architect that just focuses on, okay, I'm going to figure out every nook and cranny of this problem space. Oh. Mm-hmm. UI guy jumps on the problems, turns out like really great UIs, and then prototyper that supports just- supports the thinking. That supports the uh-huh, architect. Supports- mm-hmm. Yeah, you have that team- and that's what I'm thinking because I actually like am considering maybe pivoting, depending on the company, pivoting into product, but being more of an architect, product manager. I'm with you 100%. I've told several UX people I know that we should get involved in product. We yeah. shouldn't just go downstream. Let's go upstream. And the reason I say that is because outside of many of us not having an MBA, the, we understand every other part about it, right? You're there, solve a problem give the users what they want, make money. It's not rocket mm-hmm. science, truth be told, in the, in the yeah. overall grand scheme of things. So I feel that UX people have a lot that they could bring to product management if they can just deal with the business facets to it. Because there's a lot. There's a lot of reporting. There's a lot of analytics. Yeah. There's a lot of things that go with it. And it's not like it's all cherry and rosy, not by a long shot. It is not easy either. But I think there is, uh, there's a lot that UX people can bring to the table because of the way we think and how we have to think to solve problems. And then also, I think like an MBA is like overkill for PM role because you know, Elon Musk brought it up, right? So like MBAs are ruining companies because they're not, they're worried about business. What do you, what are you trained in when you get an MBA? It's business administration. You're looking at PLs, you're looking at financial predictions and models. That's like, not necessary entrepreneurship. That's not product either. And, or innovation. Yeah, or innovation, yeah. That, that's true. And, and I was, before I became a social science major and, and, and did uh, interdisciplinary studies, I was a business major. And so I know this truthfully. And I got out of it because I've always had an entrepreneurial bent. And I asked one of my profs, I was, he, he asked everybody, why are you here? Why are you in a business administration program? And I was like, I want to own my business. I want to be an entrepreneur eventually. And he was like, can't teach you that. I can teach you how to run somebody else's business. I can teach you what to watch out for when you become an entrepreneur and you have people working for you, but can't teach you how to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. There's like the vehicle. There's like the structure of the business that like you house the product in, but those are supporting roles and and we need that. We need that. But when it comes to product, yeah, I'm like the product management job. There's a lot of yeah reporting Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But yeah, that's, that's what's keeping designers from going there. But at the same time, it's, it's like the, it's the most high leverage position designs get reiterated every couple of years. Yes. But the best, our, the best, even the best, you just say even the best design, sorry. Even the best of designs get redone every couple of years. Yeah. And so the design isn't very high leverage. It's high fun, but it's because it's craft and you get in flow more. Yeah. But product, it's like when you're making decisions on architecture, 
there's re-architectures don't happen that often. Like when you put your thumbprint in a company, when you architect something and when you prioritize things, you mobilize millions of dollars of resources, depending on what company you go work for. That's if you can make just like a few good decisions in a year and prioritize a few good ideas, like that's super high impact. Yeah. And you can really move the needle. To be honest though, maybe a UX generalist would be better for product though, because Mm. there's so much you have to have a deep knowledge of. Yeah. Generalists actually may do better that way, to be honest, Mm -hmm. Uh, because they are, they're used to dealing with so many different things and seeing the similarities yeah right that seem divergent to other people so that's just something to think about but i do think that uh uxers should start to look into product management roles especially on a startup level it shouldn't even be a barrier there (laughs) yeah yeah and that's what we're finding my my cpo designer built the design team of redfin and uh director of product designer and it's just great because yeah it's i think you're right because not I think UX, if you're a generalist, like if you're just, you're good at everything, but you're not, because there are designers that just love getting into prototyping, that just love getting into the pixel perfect UIs and stuff. But yeah, like I could see why I'm drawn to product because it's, I'm not necessarily married to my work. If I could get another designer to see the vision and do it for me, I'm happy. I like the process and I tell everybody you have to like the process. So you have the stamina to achieve these things, large goals over time. However, I like the outcomes. That's yeah. what drives me. And that's what makes me go through the process. I like the outcomes. And so if I can achieve that outcome in product, or if I can achieve that, which I've done, I have a background in product as well, but if mm-hmm. I can achieve that in product, or if I can achieve that in design, or if I can achieve that in development, whatever I can contribute to that, great outcome. That's what I want. And I think that in some of the disciplines that are new in in incorporating UX into their workflow and into their corporate culture, they may not fully understand all that UX can contribute to those outcomes either. As I say, because of these stereotypes of UX, oh, it's all design thinking or, hey, it's make it pretty. Or I think- It's post-it notes. Yeah, it's (laughs) post-it notes. I I hate stickies, by the way. I know several people are going to listen to this and be like, yes, we know Mike hates stickies. I hate stickies. I hate stickies. I see their validity. I see their validity and the use of it in design thinking. Yes, I get it. I get it. I get it. However, I've done plenty, made millions without them. So, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's the first principles, but yeah, Mike, Michael, I really like this. I think the one thing that like I really admire about you is that you're thinking like long game. You've been in this so long because for a lot of ambitious young people like me, it's I got to become a manager as, as young as possible because that shows I'm like, have a steep career growth. But then what happens when I'm 40? And- what you want to do, if you're saying you want to be on executive track, then yeah, that might behoove you to try to pull that off earlier than later. But what I'm trying to let people understand is don't get caught up in the title and going, oh, if I no. was a manager now and I can't be a manager or director the next gig, my life is wrecked or ruined. I'm like, I don't know. Are you getting paid less? If not, then maybe you're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like well, you, you could go achieve in life. You could be like a man manager or something, and then like your next gig, you get paid more, and you're just an IC. I don't see why that's not bad. That's not I a bad gig. I was an executive and got paid more as a UX architect contributor than I did as an exec. So then there's yeah. that. So there just depends on the parameters and what you're trying to achieve with your life. And but for some people, they get divorced from the process. And that's the true thing. You might get divorced as you move up the totem pole from the IC process. And if so, if you don't keep your chops up, yeah, you might might end up sucking as a designer after time. I like to design. So as I said, I, I like to keep designing and keep my chops fresh. And it also, I think, makes me empathetic when I have a team because I know what it takes to achieve a thing, how long it'll be, and the pain and suffering I'm asking them to go through now to achieve, <laughs> to achieve this. Now, the know, best I know, I know oh, first. Yeah. Yeah, the best managers like are good at it. All the designers, when I first came up, even in print design in the early digital, all of the leaders were designers. It was after like in the mid 2000s, I started noticing people who had no design relation running design groups. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I just all kinds of people. And I was like, okay, so is this just, we're just handing out titles? How's this going here? Because this is really weird to me. So I like the craftsman thing. And I think that even if you look at the artists that we, um, all extol Da Vinci. 
right? Da Vinci was the master craftsman and he ran that shop and he had plenty of other craftspeople. It's not like he carved every statue, painted. <laughs> he couldn't do it all. He only had two hands, two eyes. Yeah, he right? product managed, man. Right, he had a whole crew. He had a team. They probably had a guild or whatever and they divvied up the work as they needed and they had levels, sets and degrees based on your proficiency and they worked together and the master craftsman led them. Man, yeah, I love that. It's so true. It's like Thomas Edison had hundreds of employees. Like he was PMing. You look at Steve Jobs, he championed design. I'm like, but like he was a PM, like Johnny Ive was the designer. Yes. Like, in a literal sense. It's when people ask like Steve Jobs, hey, what did, what do you do here? And he's oh, I just, I make the decisions and I just tell them what I want. And that's a big deal. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who flirt with leadership or management and they don't understand all the psych, the psychological stuff that goes with that. It's yeah. It, depending on the, the org and where you're at and everything, it can be a little unending. There's no turning it off. It's not if people always, oh, you got to find balance. Yeah, whatever. It's not true. And you don't turn it off. Mm-hmm. If you own the company, you're probably never going to turn it off. And that's just part and parcel of, of, of the process of dedicating yourself to achieving very large goals. Now, it depends on what your goals are. For some people, they might be like, my goal isn't to go to Mars. Then that's not such a heavy lift. That's like Elon wants to do that. That's a heavy lift. That's a crazy, literally it's heavy to get things into space to take them to Mars. So it's, that's a huge goal. And that's going to be somewhat consuming of his life in order to oh. achieve and his legacy, probably. Mm-hmm. Michael, this has been an awesome conversation. Probably one of my favorite podcast episodes that Thank I've you. recorded. Great convo. I am very thankful that you invited me. Do you have anything else you want to say before we sign off? Oh, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Respect. Thanks. Yeah. I think you covered a lot, like all the bases. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. And you have a good one. Think Just thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And you take care and have a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. And you too. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Way of Prague Design. One quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your network, your friends, and hit that subscribe button on the show wherever you're listening to it. Thanks again for listening to the show. And I'm really excited to bring more awesome interviews and content your way. So keep listening. You won't be disappointed.